So uh, this morning, like we're going to dig into Genesis chapter 11. We're kind of continuing in our series in Genesis. Remember, if we go all the way back to our beginning, we, we talked about how Genesis breaks into three phases. There's the phase of orientation that God is kind of showing himself to us. So um, orientation is Genesis 1 through 3, where God is showing us the power of his word as he speaks to us, as he uh, reminds us of who he is, that he speaks things into existence, that he uh, makes us his servants according to his will. He gives us these these uh, kind of commandments, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, or uh, guard the garden, cultivate and keep it to, to Adam in Genesis 2. So he orients us to who he is. But then in Genesis 3, we experience this disorientation, uh, the idea that sin has its effect in us and we, we are disoriented from who God is and who we are because of, uh, of sin, because of our own deception that happened in Genesis 3. And this kind of today kind of really wraps up uh, this whole series of disorientation that, that's happening. It starts in Genesis 3. Uh, with, with God confronting Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And it works all the way through here this morning, all the way through the Tower of Babel, which we'll talk about here. I was reading this morning, actually, about the UN, right? You ever see like the, the room that the UN meets in? And there's all of these translators. If you look up above, there's these different rooms where there are people translating into different languages what's being said on the floor. And I realized as I was reading this article that there's actually only six languages that they choose to speak in the United Nations. So uh, you can choose if you speak uh, English, French, Spanish, Russian, Arabic, or Chinese, you can speak in those to address the floor, or you can speak in your own native language so long as you go according to a documented speech and you don't air from that speech. It's kind of fascinating though, because if you think about it, think about what's happening here. Someone is speaking on the UN floor and they're speaking in uh, whatever language it might be. They're speaking in Swahili or, or, or Dutch or whatever it might be. And, and so someone off is translating that into one of these six languages. And then that, uh, the hearer is then hearing that language, say English, and then translating it again into Spanish. So you're using as many as three four languages at times to try and uh, translate and be heard and be understood. Oh, what a mess. And we can kind of understand why we have such a massive difference in, in uh, kind of ideologies at times. We might also talk about right now that there's nations trying to collaborate at times, trying to blame at times uh, uh, with what's going on with COVID-19. And it really all just kind of highlights that we all have kind of an agenda, so to speak, for the world. And it reminds me this morning, as we talk about Genesis 11, uh, this question. Let's just dig in with this question. Is there a plan for the world? Is there a larger overarching plan that God has for the world? Is there some kind of end to which God is pushing all humanity toward? And what is it? See, right now I see countries clamoring to have their own agenda put forth. And I do think that God is moving toward uh, human history, toward a specific end. And today we want to kind of just uncover what that end might be. And so here's our big idea. You can see it 
I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Well, it won't be on the screen. It's in your bulletin if you receive that, or if you just want to jot it down real quick. And this is kind of the, uh, the overarching theme that we have here for our time this morning. God divides the nations to make room for his blessing. God divides the nations through the confusion of language at Babel, which we're going to see, Babel. And then he makes room for his blessing, which we'll see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So I want to dig in. The first part is that we're going to see God sabotages human progress. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, God's kind of undermining the, the progress of mankind. We're going to see exactly how that works. And then in verse, uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 10, all the way through chapter 12, verse 3, we're going to see how God brings blessing to one individual man. And so what we have then is we have God undermining uh, global progress, or what we might call progress, and, and inserting blessing on one individual. And then we want to kind of just pull out some implications of what all of this means so here we go. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to start reading Genesis 11, 1 and continue through verse 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, uh, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's just stop right there for a second and kind of consider what, what's happening. See, man is planning something big, right? Man has kind of collected themselves at this place in the plain of Shinar, and they're going to build this tower. But first, notice that the whole earth is speaking one language. If we're kind of back up into Genesis 9 and 10, we remember that at this point, everyone on earth came from Noah and from his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And this is really kind of a point of emphasis that they're all speaking the same language there in verse 1. And later on, he's going to reiterate this in verses 6 through 9, talking about the issue of language. So all of these, these people kind of come together at the land of Shinar, and they are speaking uh, the same language. It's almost like a big family reunion right there, right? They're all kind of getting together, and they're saying, hey, we're going to build this massive tower. But look at what they intended with that. First, they kind of discover some technology, right? They're going to burn these bricks and they're going to use this bitumen for mortar and they're going to build this massive tower. But this technology is used for certain ends. And we see those ends recorded in verse four. First, they want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Uh, most commentators think that this is a ziggurat. Um, here's a picture of a ziggurat. This is kind of a, an understanding of what an ancient Near Eastern temple would look like. Uh, specifically, it was meant as this kind of meeting place with the gods. In fact, uh, this place, Babel, which will later on become Babylon, Babylon actually means gate of the gods. And so initially what they're trying to do is they're building this tower that's this gateway to connection with God. In fact, if you know anything about ancient Babylon, there was this uh, ziggurat that was there that was named Atamanet. Nenki or something like that. I can't really actually pronounce it. I wish I could smell, sound smarter than I actually am, but I can't. But sure enough, this, this ziggurat existed. And, and on the top level, there was eight levels of this ziggurat. On the top level, there was a temple given to the god Marduk and his wife. And the interesting thing about it is they put couches there. 
because Marduk would surely be tired from his journey from heaven down to earth, right? And sure enough, uh, you know, if he wanted to make a press release, there was another room adjacent for his uh, God friend who was his kind of scribe. And, and so sure enough, that's what was happening in this ziggurat. But the phrase, even here in our text, right? We want to build a, a tower with its, with its heights in the heavens, Right? We want to build this gateway to God. We want to make a name for ourselves. In fact, that's the second thing that he says, that we want to make a name for ourselves there in verse 4. It's not just religious in nature. These builders desire fame. It's the, the temptation to a standing legacy, to extend myself beyond my years so that something will long or last long after I die. In fact, that word name is going to be really central to our understanding here this morning. And we just want to put that on the shelf for right now to say that these people are, are trying to build a name for themselves. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But the third thing they want is they want to avoid being dispersed over all the earth. Now, before we kind of just move on from that and just kind of pass over it, that they, they want to collect themselves into a city, we remember from Genesis 1.28 that God had called Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply to what? Fill the earth and subdue it. But God's design was for mankind to kind of spread out, to, to kind of spread out throughout all the world and to fill the world uh, with his image. Remember, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God and God designed to cover the earth with his image bearers. And so it's interesting to note then that these people gather together at the plain of Shinar and they are, are kind of intentionally saying we are not going to be scattered. Instead, we're going to gather together here. Now in verses 5 through 9, what we see is God's interaction with this intention of man. And so look at with me at Genesis 11 verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only be the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let's just stop there for a second. God is inspecting man's accomplishment in verses 5 and 6. And what happens is it says God comes down. And you might stop if you're a person who's uh, theological in nature. You say, wait a minute, isn't God present everywhere? Why does God need to come down? And you'd be absolutely right. It's not that God isn't present at the Tower of Babel. Rather, the author is using kind of this anthropomorphism, this, this statement to say, it's as if kind of God had to stoop down and to kind of bend down and look and see exactly what the sons of men had built. It was so small and insignificant in the eyes of God that God had to stoop down to look at it, to inspect it. God had to kind of get down, uh, so to speak, come down and visit and see this tiny, insignificant thing that man had made. And notice what God says in verse 6. They are one people. That is, they have a common language, a common ancestry. These people are are united. They're, they're pulling to themselves together. And then verse 6 again, this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
So God sees that mankind isn't limited in his capacities, or at least they don't think that they're limited in their capacity. And he goes on, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. This is kind of hard for us to think through, isn't it? It really strikes against us because we're saying, why does God limit human progress? Why is our God kind of one who wants to step in and kind of sabotage what mankind is doing? And we forget sometimes that what we call human progress, in quotes, is really human regression. Anything that's done apart from God's presence and his goodness, anything that's done contrary to what God would desire and want for us isn't progress, it's regression. And so God comes down and graciously thwarts exactly what man had intended at Babel. Remember the secular effort at Babel, what exactly they were trying to do without God. It would never actually reach to the heavens. It would never actually be a gateway to God. They would never actually create a lasting name for themselves. And they would never actually stop themselves from, from being dispersed. And further, uh, and this is a, a statement from human history, every time we as people come together to do something as a we, it almost inevitably devolves into a me. Every time we start to do something with us in mind, it almost always gets hijacked by some individual's personal agenda. And so what God does is he graciously intervenes. And in verses 7 through 9, we see exactly how this happens. We're going to read verse 7 and then continue through verse 9 again. God, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. See, God accomplishes his plan by confusing their language. God is the ultimate social distancer, isn't he? That's what happens here, right? He, he's the one who truly knows how to get distance between mankind. And so what he does is he, he consults amongst himself. In verse 7, he says, Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And in confusing their language, God is kind of in, uh, inserting some social distance between mankind so that now they're not all just the sons of Noah. They are the sons of Shem and Ham and Japheth that speak maybe entirely different languages and will be driven to other corners of the earth because of God's action here. See, God is the one who's responsible for creating the nations. Our God has created the nations with the smallest flick of his wrist, with, with the, the, the least uh, involved uh, intention. He's, he so uh, easily has created the nations in these chapters. And there are three ultimate kind of judgments that God gives us in the book of Genesis. The first is in Genesis 3, where God declares to Adam and to Eve the curses that they'll have for their sin. 
and that that will pass on to all mankind, right? Uh, man's going to have toil in his labor. A man is going to die. He's going to be returned to dust in, at the end of Genesis 3. A woman is going to have pain in childbirth, and her desire is going to be for her husband. The second thing we see is this global judgment uh, in the days of Noah when God uh, wipes the earth clean except for Noah and his family and those animals in the ark. And, and, and God brings about this promise that he's never going to again judge the earth. But the third universal or global judgment that God is going to bring is right here in Genesis 11, that he sees the pride and self-reliance of, of the people at Babel, and he's going to bring about the separation of the nations. And so God has scattered mankind in judgment because of their independence, because of their secularism. Because this one people, the descendants of Noah, wanted to carve out a name for themselves with self-made religion, God scattered them. It's a blatant, state, blatant statement from God that we cannot make our way to him. We cannot carve our way to God. We can't build a tower to the heavens that would some kind, uh, build some kind of nexus between us and the Lord. That doesn't work that way. And so God intentionally frustrates their purpose. But what I want to highlight is that we have to understand Genesis 11 in the context of, of the rest of Genesis. If we just understand the Tower of Babel uh, independently of what else God is writing to us in the book of Genesis, we're really prone to misunderstand it. We'll really see a God who's just uh, envious. We'll see a God who's just uh, desirous of... of, uh, of uh, kind of this affection, so to speak. He, he's wanting badly. But what we want to see is instead that God moves these people who desire to make a name for themselves, and then he puts his blessing on one individual. If we were to look at 11.10 through 12.3, which we'll do here this morning, we're going to see that God brings blessing to one man, that God intentionally uh, promises blessing to Abram. And I want to tell that story here as it comes through Genesis 11 and the early parts of Genesis 12. Look with me at Genesis 11.10. Actually, you know what? We're not going to read these portions for the sake of time. Uh, this is a continuation of a genealogy. And what happens is it's telling the story about how Abram comes from Shem. Uh, Shem was Noah's son, uh, the one that received the blessing way back in Genesis 9. And this blessing is going to flow from Shem all the way through these generations down to Abram. And it follows this kind of pattern. If you were to kind of dive into the language here, it's the familiar pattern that we saw in Genesis 5. And so it says, when so-and-so had lived X amount of years, he fathered this person. And Genesis 5 and 11 are very similar in that. In fact, when we kind of look, we see that Genesis 5 all the way through 11 are really just a long extended genealogy. And we pause to kind of take in the stories of Noah and we pause to take in the story of Babel. Um, and God kind of inserts those into the midst of this long genealogy. So really the end game of all of this is to show us that there was 10 generations between Adam and Noah. And then there's 10 generations between Noah and Abram. And what it highlights is that Adam was the father of all humanity. Noah was the father of all humanity. And now God is making Abram the father of God's people. 
in a very specific way. So as we look at verses 10 through 26, we just see this genealogy and we kind of wonder why is that there? It's really highlighting that Abram was connected to Noah and was the recipient of that continuation of promise. Well, look at verse 27 with me, and we're going to see a little bit about Abram's family history in verses 27 through 30. So Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. See, Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, I'm going to say that all the time. Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, you can see, we have a map here. I hope you can see it. But Ur is down here. It's in modern-day Iraq. If you look, this is Iraq at large. This is where the city of Ur was. And this is the travel that Abram had done to get to Canaan, the land that God promised him in Genesis 12, 7. And so he travels from Ur up to Haran, uh, and, and then they stop there. And we'll read about that in just a second. But you can see on the map, Ur is, is near modern-day Iraq. It was in Ur that this brother of, of Abram, Nahor, dies, or Haran dies, excuse me. And so it says that in verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his kindred. And this is significant in that Abraham, Abram is going to be called upon to leave the land of his fathers. It was also in Ur that Abram takes his wife, Sarah. And one of the most important details that this text pat, or tells us is that Sarai is, is barren. She can't have children. And I know for some of us that bears a lot of weight. We also may have experienced childlessness. We may also have experienced difficulty becoming pregnant. And so this bears a lot of weight. In fact, if we kind of can continue to keep this in mind throughout our time in Genesis, we're going to find a lot of women who are barren. In fact, Sarai is going to be barren. Uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is also barren until he prays over her in Genesis 25. Uh, Jacob's second wife, Rachel, is barren until she has children eventually by God's grace. See, there is this theme of barrenness and promise and how those two things kind of come together in the book of Genesis. In fact, God sovereignly moves uh, to establish his, his people through the progeny of Abram. And we'll read about that in coming chapters. But for now, we want to see how God sovereignly moves Abram out of Ur to Haran and eventually to Canaan. Verses 31 through 32, look with me there in Genesis 11. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. See, Terah, Lot, Abram, and Sarai, they take a road trip, right? They, they leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and they're headed, uh, as you can see, all the way over here to Canaan, but they're, they're not going to pass through this massive desert that's right here. I feel like a weatherman right now, right? But uh, they go from Ur, and they end up stopping in Haran. And this is where Terah, Abram's dad, dies. 
they, they lost a brother in Ur, they lose a father in Haran, and it sets the table for Abram to be able to go wherever God calls him to go. See, when we see that, the promises of Genesis 12 start to take shape. Look at Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God makes this massive promise to Abram, doesn't he? Probably cover this section a little bit more further or in depth next week. But this is a really pivotal place in the book of Genesis. But this morning, I really want to dig in and I want to see it as, as it's connected to the story of the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11. And I want to just highlight a few things that stand out as these two stories are kind of connected. First, God calls Abram to leave his father's country, right? He calls Abram first to leave Ur and then to leave Haran and go to Canaan. And all the while, the whole time this has been uh, the desire is to go to Canaan. If the intention of Babel was to gather everyone together around this tower to make a name for themselves, God's intention in Abraham is to scatter, to move Abram away from his father's house and move him where he desires him to be. The second thing that we see is this word usage for land or earth. That's the same word in Genesis 11 and 12. Uh, It's central to this passage. See, in Genesis 11, the participants at Babel didn't want to be spread over the land, over the earth. Uh, Terah moves to a different land in 1131, and now God tells Abram to move to a new land in Genesis 12. See, what, what it's saying is that God is the sovereign God of all land He owns everything. He moves about his servants as he sees fit. And he's not content to let everyone gather together. Instead, he wants to disperse them. And so he sends Abram away from his father's house so that he can accomplish his purpose. Third, God promises to make Abram's name great. If you remember back to what the story of the Tower of Babel told us is that they wanted to make a great name for themselves. And look at God's promise to to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. The thing that the participants at the Tower of Babel couldn't get through their fame and glory as they were dispersed and scattered, God gives to Abraham through no effort of his own. God blesses Abram with this massive blessing, and he makes his name great. But the most important thing that we see in Genesis 11 and 12, the ties between the story of Babel and the blessing to Abraham, is that God promises to bless those nations that he's created at Babel through one man, Abram. You see that? 
You see how God created through the confusion of language at Babel, he created all of these nations so that they would go out throughout all the earth. And then he focuses his blessing on one particular individual, Abram, so that through Abram, he can spread his blessing to all people. And so if we're kind of going to just kind of summarize exactly what's stated here in Genesis 11 and 12, we see first that God scatters his people through the confusion of their language, through different dialects. He makes nations. And then God isolates one individual and he pours out his promise and his blessing on Abram so that through that one individual, he can bless all nations. He creates the nations by scattering. He creates blessing by his promise. And then he brings his blessing to all those nations that he's created. See, when we stop and we think about this, we've got to pick up these biblical categories and we've got to think through them with the richness of the gospel in mind. Because we know that it's not through Abraham, per se, that... that, the nations will be blessed, but rather through Abraham's seed, singular. See, eventually all of these nations will be blessed through Jesus. We might just stop and we might just consider how exactly is God going to bless the nations that he's just created through one guy named Abram, who happens to be like a gypsy wandering individual who has no family roots. How does God intend to bless all the earth through one guy and his two or three family members? Galatians 3.8, I think gives us a little bit of a perspective on this. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter three, verse eight, because I want you to see this with your eyes. Galatians 3, Paul writes this. He says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, the scripture is foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand. God is preaching the good news of the gospel to Abraham here in Genesis 12, verse 3. And what is that good news? That all nations are going to be blessed through him. That is, through Abraham's great, 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 great grandchild, eventually all the nations will be blessed. How does that work? He says that they would be justified by faith, that the Gentiles, the nations, uh, would be justified by their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with that word, the word justified just means to be declared righteous, that all of these nations that God had created will have some in their midst who are declared righteous because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is how God is intending to bless the nations through Abraham. You and I, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, have been declared righteous through our faith in Jesus. 
Uh, the blessing for the world that came, that was to come through Abraham has come to us as we are recipients of God's mercy and goodness in Christ. That is to say that God came down again at the incarnation. Just as God came down at the tab- Tower of Babel to inspect what's happening, God comes down at the incarnation. He's born into a major. He lives a sinless life and he dies a sinner's death so as to initiate his kingdom, so as to pool the nations together under the lordship of Jesus. This is the good news that we hear this morning. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, verse 9, uh, we get this clear statement of God's end for the world, or one of God's end ends for the world. And it's recording the song of those in heaven. And they say this, they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're speaking to Jesus. For you were slain. Listen to this. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, God gives us the front end of the nations here. He says, I've created the nations at Babel, and the the other end of the timeline is over in heaven when God will collect people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we see that God has a trajectory to which he's moving human history. But if if we didn't think you know, this was enough, if this was sufficient. What we see at the beginning of God's church is we see a clear description of what exactly God wants to do. While, while Babel stands at the front end of the timeline, in the middle of the timeline is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. See, the apostles, if you're not familiar with the stories, the apostles gather in this upper room and all of a sudden a wind comes down again from heaven. And it, it, these flaming tongues of fire appear above the apostles' head and they start to speak in various languages and tongues that they've never known. And so they start to speak and they go out into the marketplace and, and all of these people start to gather around them and they hear uh, the the disciples speaking in their language as they're from all of these various nations. And in fact, Acts chapter 2 lays out for us all of the nations from which they come. And as as we read this passage, we realize that these are the nations that surround the Mediterranean, the known world at that time. And these disciples are speaking in their tongue. What God confused in Genesis 11, God brings unification and and unity in the gospel in Acts chapter 2. So that we are are seeing that God scatters, but then he gathers under the name of Jesus Christ. As the Spirit is empowering these disciples to speak in languages that they don't know, in order to proclaim Jesus Christ, we see the beginning of God's church. And it's a reminder to us that God's church is to go out to the nations. Matthew 28, right? Matthew 28 tells us, go, therefore, we hear this all the time, go, therefore, and make disciples of what? Of all the nations. You and I, you and I have this unique privilege 
as God invites us into his plan for the nations. God invites us to participate in his plan for the nations. And the joy that we have is that we get to speak the good news of God's uh, unity or the, the unity that he has provided through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You and I get to speak the good news of forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of his own son. We get to speak the good news of resurrection from the dead as our Savior was resurrected. And as we do, we get to speak to all kinds of people. We get to speak to, to people who speak different languages than us. We get to speak to those who, who are from different ethnic backgrounds to us, to, to those who have different skin color than us, because God has a desire for the nations. God has a desire for the gospel to do its work in gathering God's people from around the globe so that God receives all glory and honor and authority in the earth. Amen? Isn't this so like our God? Our God is the one who uses the redeemed, to be an instrument of redemption. Our God is the one who uses those who are scattered across the earth to gather his people together. You and I have the joy of participating in that. Sometimes I'll get the question uh, from people and they'll say, you know, if you believe that God sovereignly saves people, why would we ever go out and share good news? If, if it's just something God's going to accomplish, why would we worry about it? Why would we lift a finger to, to go across the world or, or even to our neighbor to speak the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? My answer is always the same. It's because we have joy in participating in God's plan for the nations. You and I have the delight of seeing God work and accomplish his work in his people for his glory. You and I are invited into that goodness and mercy from God to be firsthand witnesses of, of God bringing someone into his kingdom, bringing someone out of the domain of darkness and into his glorious light. We have the front row seat to be able to see what God is going to accomplish in our midst. Why would we ever forfeit that? So the question is, does, does God have a plan for the world? You bet he does. And whatever's happening right now, with disease, with sickness, and let's just push even beyond that with natural disasters, with the individual pressures that you face, maybe economically or, or whatever else it may be. Does God have a plan? You bet he does. In the life that we live right now, it will be short in the long scheme of eternity. We trust right now that God has a plan for how he's moving the world forward. I heard a story as David Platt was telling this. He was recounting uh, an interaction he had with some individuals who uh, probably didn't know Christ. And they made this statement. We hear this a lot. We say uh, it's kind of an analogy where uh, there's many roads that lead up the mountain, right? So these individuals were kind of 
saying to David Platt, hey, there's all kinds of ways to get to heaven. There's all kinds of ways to get to God. And, and so if, we, if we're uh, you know, Buddhist or if we're Muslim or whatever else, it doesn't really matter because in the end, uh, the end will all be the same. We'll all be getting back to God, as it were. And I love what Platt returned and, and said to them. He said, but the difference is that Christianity tells us not that we have to climb the mountain, that God came down the mountain to us. That God came down from his seat in, in heaven. That Jesus took on our flesh. That he became a servant, as Philippians 2 says. And he served us even to the point of death. That we couldn't make our way to God. But when we had failed and faltered, God made his way to us. And you and I have the joy and privilege of, of celebrating the God who came down the mountain, of describing that grace and mercy to those around us. I hope and I pray that, that with this, was, as we see the beginning of God's nations in Genesis 11, we might also grab God's heart for those nations. And we might also grab God's heart for, for those around us who, who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might pray for them. We might intercede before God's throne. That we might ask and plead that God save them. I want to pray this morning that God makes us people of his mission. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now that you would allow us a sense of your heart for the nations. Your desire, your design to see men and women, your chosen ones, come into your kingdom. Be a part of your kingdom by your grace and by your mercy. God, we plead with you that you would bring about conversions in our midst, that we would see men and women come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through your grace, that we would have the joy and the privilege of seeing your people formed in our presence. God, be glorified in this. Honor your name as you bring men and women into submission to your rule and authority through the shed blood of Jesus pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 3 as we close. 1 Peter writes this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's be those who have a, an answer for the hope that lies within us. Let's be those that are ready to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, thanks for joining with us. Like Ryan said, we can't wait to see you again. We're praying that we can. And uh, we love you, and we'll see you later.